coming up on Economics Explored. Over 30 years of practicing law and doing negotiations, et cetera, I concluded just from that experience that understanding my counterparty in a negotiation and understanding my counterparty's motivations was almost always the best piece of information I would ever develop because I could extrapolate from that backwards based on what they said, the the papers they presented, the demands they made, the client they represent. I I could extrapolate from motivation pathways to where they wanted to go, how they wanted to get there, why they wanted to get there. And then I could Uh, design my approach in the negotiation. I could design my argumentation. I could design the timing of my delivery of facts, information, demands, and positional uh, concessions in the direction of make it mesh with their motivations. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 91 on negotiation and design thinking with Stanford University lecturer, David Johnson. David teaches advanced negotiation at Stanford Law School and design thinking at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Over the last 20 years, he has also practiced law in Silicon Valley, primarily as general counsel for tech companies and most recently for a non-profit foundation. In our conversation, David provides some great insights into how design thinking can help us negotiate better. As part of this discussion, we reflect on how better negotiation skills gained through design thinking can help us solve important economic, social and environmental challenges. Toward the end of the episode, we also talk about a book David is currently writing on climate activism by design, so please stick around for that. Before we get to my conversation with David, I'd like to thank those listeners who've sent through comments and questions regarding some recent episodes. Following my decarbonisation monologue in episode 86, listener Ian sent me a link to an article on the Renew Economy website titled AEMO, that's the Australian Energy Market Operator. AEMO says Australia well ahead of 90% renewable scenario for 2040. I'll link to that article in the show notes and have a closer look at it in a future episode. Decarbonisation is a huge issue here in Australia, given that we still have a heavy reliance on coal for power generation and also because we are exporting a lot of coal to the rest of the world. I've also received some comments regarding episode 87 on saving and investing for retirement. Listener James has noted that one issue with so-called target date retirement funds or life cycle options as we call them in Australia is that they attract higher fees so they may not end up delivering net benefits relative to other types of funds depending on your circumstances. As always, please consider consulting a financial advisor regarding saving and investment decisions. James also mentioned the relatively high fees charged by superannuation funds in Australia and that there is a big debate over whether such fees are justified. I'll put some links in the show notes related to James's points and try to come back to them in a future episode. If you have any comments on previous episodes or on this episode after you've listened to it, please send them through to contact at economicsexplored.com. Righto. Now for my conversation with David Johnson from Stanford Law School on negotiation and design thinking. I hope you enjoy it. Professor David Johnson from Stanford, good to have you on the program. My pleasure, Gene. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, David. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you today. Now, we're going to be chatting about negotiation and design thinking. And one thing I've noticed is that You teach a course at Stanford, Negotiation by Design. Could you tell us a little bit about that course, please? Yeah, sure. So I'm a little bit lucky that Stanford has uh, an institute for design, actually funded by Hasso Plattner. I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he's the founder of SAP, a multi-billionaire. And he set up design school or design institution. We call it the D-School at both Stanford and also his home university in Potsdam, 
uh, Germany. And they have both been growing mightily over the last 5, 10, 15, 15 years probably. And so I was teaching negotiation at the law school and ran into one of the professors at the design school. And we just got to talking. And I said, what if, uh, you know, think of a linear accelerator. I said, what if we think, what if we just smash design thinking into negotiation and see what happens? And they love to experiment at the D school. And that became the project that we started with. And, and that kind of is the uh, beginning of this idea. But I knew in my heart of hearts that there are certain things that they teach, that we teach now at the, at the D school, that they teach to design students that carry over and have application in uh, negotiation. Uh, so sort of that's where we went with it. We took the elements of what they teach at the D school and started applying it uh, to negotiation. And uh, the students are required to come with some prior training in negotiation so that we're all working on the same page with the same kind of language, the understanding basics uh, of negotiations, OPAs and BATNAs and concessions and position bargaining and whatnot. And so we really work on the emotional component and the process design component of negotiation. Okay. So I guess there's a couple of things, well, a few things to explore there. It'd be good to, yeah. I, I, I need to ask you about design thinking, what what that is, and also like what is this design school more broadly? I mean, I understand that Stanford really is at the centre of the the tech revolution, isn't it? I mean, Stanford's very closely connected with Silicon Valley mm. and this design school, is this about design, helping people design all the new products, uh, the products that get us addicted? Uh, I, think, yeah. I, think, I think I've seen they've got a subject on how you, you hook people on different products. Can you tell us a bit about the design school and, yeah. uh, and then what this design thinking is, please, David? Yeah, so let's start with the D School. It was founded by two or three faculty at Stanford from the engineering department, one of whom was David Kelly, who then went on to be a co-founder of the company IDEO, which is now a global design firm, uh, rose to fame as uh, the design firm that helped Steve Jobs uh, sort of take the Apple mouse to the next level, sort of took the Apple mouse from sort of the standard design up a notch aesthetically and otherwise. They may have had their hand in other design uh, pieces at uh, Apple as well, but there's a close relationship between IDEO and Apple, and thus also the D School and IDEO. Now, it started with engineering, so the the sort of genome of the D School was built around designing products, and the focus uh, is on when you design products, the focus is on the user. So they came up with the term human-centered design thinking. So. There's a school of design in Paris uh, and Singapore. Uh, the name escapes me right now, but the dean of that school refers to, he, he, he does a nice job of different, differentiating design from design thinking. Design thinking is a component that most all designers use when they design, but design thinking is itself not actually the execution of design. It's a method of thinking about problems. It's a method of it's a combination of tactical approaches that kind of we call design thinking to tackling big problems, to exploring a problem domain when we don't even know what the problem is, but there seems to be a need for a design solution. And so it's, uh, we call it the designer's mindset. We begin really by training the students with the designer's mindset, which is equal parts of collaboration on a team, expanding one's skills in creative exploration of ideas, prototyping for products, building simple models that might or might not work, but at least give you something tangible to look at and think about and visualize as you iterate towards uh, designing the product that you uh, are aiming to build. And layered on top of that is an extensive amount of work interviewing potential users, customers, clients, the people who you are designing for. And uh, to, to quote 
uh, some tech CEO who I think it was the CEO who uh, founded Slack. And his name is escaping me. He says, without empathy, you can't design for anyone. Mm. You have to have this element of empathy to be able to understand what your user really wants uh, in order to design something that will be satisfying for them. So the idea, the big picture idea was to move away from the old model of engineering where the engineers would understand the problem, sit down and design and build a product that they thought would solve the problem as opposed to postponing all of the design build function until an, a significant amount of what they call ethnographic interviewing had occurred, interviewing the people you're designing for to get a better understanding of what their needs are before you even begin to sit down and, and build the product. You know, a really good analog for this is object-oriented modeling, Grady Booch uh, being kind of the godfather of software engineering and object modeling, his mantra was postpone coding as long as possible. Focus on the design of your software. Focus on the need that your software is trying to fill uh, before you start writing code. It's the same kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. I remember I was involved in the development of this return on investment calculator for workplace health and safety here in the state of Australia. I'm in Queensland and we worked with this development firm in that, that came up from Melbourne. And what they did was that they had a, a workshop with us and we had all these post-it notes and we're working out what are the features we think are essential in this. And so we, we spent all this time talking about the design and the user experience. I thought that was really good. So I guess that's what you're, what you're talking about there. Yeah, it, it sounds very much like you are using design thinking principles. Um, we use, we, you know, we are mocked sometimes for our heavy use of post-it notes, um, <laughs> but they happen to be a particularly convenient way, as you probably found out, of setting tangibly, writing down or notating in some fashion an idea or an element of an idea, putting it on the wall, but being able to move it around with six, eight, 10, or 40, 50, 60 other ideas, and you can visually reassemble concepts. And so that's why we're kind of addicted to <laughs> post-it notes on any kind of vertical surface. Uh, and if you wander through the D school, you'll see tens of thousands of posted notes <laughs> on some hundreds of boards floating around. And that's the way the work gets done. It may or may not be to everybody's cup of tea, but that's kind of how we function. And it sounds very much like what you did. Yeah, yeah. So who would be taking your course, David? So you'd have people, well, you mentioned lawyers. So lawyers need to know about negotiation because they're negotiating on behalf of clients and, and you want to come to some negotiation because the last thing you want to do is go to court because court is so ridiculously expensive. And mm -hmm. also, uh, I guess, people in, in startups who might need to negotiate with venture capital investors or potential purchases of their company. Is that, are they yeah. the type of people who come into your course? They, they can be. So my, I teach an advanced transactions course uh, at the law school, advanced negotiation for transactions. And so what you just described, venture capital negotiations all the way up to uh, mergers and acquisitions uh, is a central component of that course. And that course is focused almost entirely on law and business students. And that's all fine. And what I do at the D school is I try to open the course up to students from across the university. The D school is primarily set up to cater to graduate students. So we open the door and try to get a mix of graduate students from across the university. Now we do get applications from law students and business school students, and they're certainly welcome into the class. We have a limited number that we can accept, but I try to mix it up pretty well. They all have some negotiation background sufficient, like I said earlier, to, to manage the course. But I find you know, there's all kinds of diversity and this subject matter diversity is one that is particularly rich. So it's really good for business school students or law school students or even medical students who come through sometimes to also have in the class students are working on a PhD in sociology or psychology uh, who can or, or neuroscience who can really understand and talk about the, the what empathy is and isn't and how it's expressed that kind of richness comes from having a, a really diverse student body. So we pretty carefully, of course, the students have to apply. So we, 
we fairly carefully select them, uh, oftentimes on subject matter expertise. Okay. And so how does design thinking help with negotiation? Is it about getting that, that helicopter view or you're, you're asking people to step away or, or think about looking at the negotiation from above and what are the different positions people are taking? Like, how is it going to work? I mean, how, do you have an example of how this design thinking can help with negotiation? So most negotiation courses will talk about uh, what you're describing, which some people call seeing the whole board. Some people okay. say, call it go to the balcony. The yes. idea of in, when you're on the stage, think about going to the balcony and looking back down on stage to see what the action is, is and who the players are. These are all great ideas and they're necessary components. We try and go kind of a step further, but also a step or two uh, deeper. The There's two tools that, that we've developed for this class that uh, I'll talk about here. One of them we call the empathy map. And the idea here is, and I can, I can describe it, it's pretty easy to envision. Yeah. Envision a bullseye with three concentric circles, uh, an outer circle, a middle circle, and then the bullseye circle. And so what we do is we present the students, sometimes with a video or sometimes with a, a uh, written memo that describes a scenario where there's a conflict and there's quite a bit of emotion actually in this conflict. And most conflicts, uh, negotiations have their share of emotion in them. Um, divorces and employment law areas are two particularly rich areas for you know, exploring emotion in negotiation. And so what we have the students do is observe the person in the video or in the simulation and write down in the outside circle, put up, put down post-its, notes in the outer circle of what the facts are. What do, what do you see this person doing? What do you hear this person saying? What are the actual facts that are emanating from the uh, simulation we're giving you? And if you flip this over to a real world scenario, this is where you capture the facts and you stay laser focused on the facts at this point in time. Then we move away from the memo. We move away from the video. We say now, Look at the facts that you've aggregated that you felt were important from this exercise. Now we want you to infer abductive reasoning. We want you to make an educated inference from these facts or assemble the facts in groups of two or three and infer what the person is feeling based on those facts as you see them. With the overarching understanding, I have to say, that we are not marching towards a conclusion that is necessarily quantitatively correct or provable. We're building a hypothesis here. So the second ring in this circle is a collection of inferences. So if they collected 20 facts, we'll ask them to write down eight, six or eight inferences in that center circle. And then from those inferences, those educated guesses they've made about what the person is thinking or feeling, then we ask them to derive two or three plausible motivations, plausible motivations for this person that they're going to go negotiate with. And this process, we, we do not teach this with the idea that this is something you do before every negotiation. You get out a piece of paper, you draw a map, you do your post-its, et cetera, et cetera. What we're trying to teach is the process the empathic process of working from facts at hand, which are knowable, the knowns, the known knowns, as our former <laughs> Secretary of State used to say. You make reasonable inference and then you arrive at motivations. And the reason I built it this way is because over 30 years of practicing law and doing negotiations, et cetera, I concluded just from that experience that understanding my counterparty in a negotiation and understanding my counterparty's motivations was almost always the best piece of information I would ever develop because I could extrapolate from that backwards based on what they said, the, the papers they presented, the demands they made, the client they represent. I could, I could extrapolate from motivation pathways to where they wanted to go, how they wanted to get there, why they wanted to get there. And then I could 
design my approach in the negotiation. I could design my argumentation. I could design the timing of my delivery of facts, information, demands, and positional uh, concessions in the direction of make it mesh with their motivations. Right. So this tool is designed to teach young negotiators the, the, the need to go deep and do the work to understand the motivations of their counterparty, whether it's conflict or a transaction. Yeah. I was listening to a, a podcast interview you did earlier this year, and you told this story about this negotiation you were involved in where it was, I think it was about IP, and you basically concluded that the other party, like their claim was just ridiculous. Like they were asking for $1 billion of compensation for this, uh, this IP for using for your company, your client using the IP or, or whatever the facts were. And you, and I think you obviously figured out that, well, they're actually coming from a position where they're desperate because their business, like it's, it, it wasn't worth as much. Like you, your company could actually buy the, the business yeah. itself. So yeah. is, is that an example where you could, were you thinking, well, where are they coming from? What, what are, the, what are they feeling? Is that an example of what you're talking about, David? You know, in retrospect, because that case uh, arose before I started teaching this class. That was back when I was in full-time law practice. So in retrospect, I could say, yes, there are elements. It's a blended example. So you captured the facts pretty neatly, which is this small company sued our big company. They were in desperate straits because their their company... Pro, their, their, their company was a one product company. It was a biotech company, medical device, actually, medical device company. And they couldn't sell the product. We were contracted with them to help sales and distribution, but the product wouldn't sell. We'll set aside the reasons. And they were in desperate straits and they brought in a, a very high priced, a very skilled, very famous trial lawyer who made this presentation, but missed entirely, missed entirely the fact that the amount of money he was asking for exceeded the market capitalization of this small public company that was on the, what we call the pink sheets, trading at $1.12. And my company was literally a one of the top 10 global pharmaceuticals in the world. And it, it's a classic example of somebody going too far out on the limb and letting in the branch breaking underneath them. Mm. Uh, but we helped them break the branch. So after they did that on the first day of the negotiation, this was a surprise tactic. I was sort of left with, okay, how do we respond to this? They're asking for $1.2 billion. And so what I did was blend, you know, I blended the two approaches. I thought hard and long about why are they doing this? I thought long and hard about the condition of the company and what their future looked like, which was probably a fire sale of their assets because of the for the reasons that you know had to do with FDA regulation, it had to do with insurance payments for this uh, medical device, and so they grossly over anchored their position, trying to maximize their to, to dupe us into thinking if we, you know, we might go to eight or nine figures right out of the gate, and that wasn't just wasn't going to happen, and um, so motivation was part of it. And then part of it was just good old fashioned lawyering where you sit down and you say, okay, it's nine o'clock at night. We start the negotiation tomorrow morning. What do I have at my fingertips? Well, I've got the internet mm. and I've got their public record filings. So I look up their SEC filings and I extrapolate from, uh, you know, their stock price. I extrapolate from the bonuses payable to the CEO, the value of their patent portfolio and how much it might cost for my my guys to, you know, buy eight or ten percent of the company off the public markets without affecting drastically affecting the stock price, and we turn around and 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 went at them the following morning and got a deal for I think like 002 percent of their demand, you know, by the, by the following afternoon. It's it's an interesting example of sort of blending multiple skills in negotiation, but. It does touch on one other thing that we teach heavily at the D school. We have captured a list of what we call the eight core design abilities. One of them, perhaps the primary one, is something we call navigating ambiguity. And we run the students through a whole slew of exercises where we give them partial information and give them a problem 
And, you know, kind of like a business school case study where you dole out bits and pieces of information across a couple of hours and you drag the students through this sequence of stuff in each new piece of information causes them to have to twist or pivot their thinking and move in a different direction. It's really a neat process. It's a fun process to be part of as well as to teach. And uh, the whole point is to get people comfortable with developing the confidence to navigate when they're in an uncertain situation, particularly under live fire. And anybody who's negotiated in real world, real time, live fire knows that it can get chaotic not in, not in the truest sense of chaos. It can get ambiguous. It can be uncertain. You get new information. You get clients changing their mind. You have people getting upset over things that you don't think they should get upset about. Or your client gets upset mm-hmm. over something that maybe they should get upset about. These sorts of things all happen in real time. And the negotiator's job really is multifaceted. But one of them is managing process. That's where to go full circle. All of these skills that I teach, I design into, pardon the pun, design into the course, are really ultimately trying to improve the young negotiation students' confidence in their ability to manage the process in a state of uncertainty. Right. That'd be good to explore, like managing the process. Now, I don't know if this is relevant, but Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, he's got the, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever watched any of his videos, but he's a great, I mean, you know, He's an incredible salesman, and his idea is that it's the straight line method, and you give your sales presentation, and if there's an objection or if they uh, they ask a question or push back on something, you you meet that objection, you respond to it, but then you go back to the start of your presentation, you run through it again. So the idea is you want to have this straight line. You want to go through the presentation fully and have them accept all of it so it's there and they're more likely to then say yes is that an example has he actually thought about the process is that an example of what you're talking about this is new to me and what he's using is a is a very clever sort of psychological or persuasion trick there's uh there's a really good article by an author, last name Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. Yep. Cialdini. I think it's Richard Cialdini on the science of persuasion. And he talks about the sort of cognitive biases that we're all subject to and how persuasion takes advantage of those cognitive biases to get the other side more comfortable with accepting our proposal. And it sounds very much like what Jordan Belfort's doing here is, is, is that just it doesn't matter what the person's objections are. Your, your task is to eliminate or at least vitiate and nullify that objection, detune their objection, and then start over. And you just kind of keep pressing the iron until the shirt has no more wrinkles in it. Yeah. Right. And now you've got a freshly pressed shirt. And what are they going to, what, what can they say at that point? To be honest, I consider that to be a form of negotiation bullying. And uh, right. I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean that yeah. descriptively. That's what he's trying to do. He, he's in pure sales. I don't teach negotiation for, for salespeople. It's a different animal. Okay. Um, I kind of understand it. It's just a different, it's less deal, it's less collaborative, less deal-oriented, less dispute resolution, and it's more straight sales. And I have respect for that. I, I you know, Chris Voss has a book. Uh, he's an FBI negotiator, and he has a book out that resonates to a degree with me because he emphasizes empathic negotiation, which is, uh, in fact, as I read the book, I'm seeing stuff that that we started teaching five years ago uh, before he published the book. But, you know, that none of this is really big secret. It's just emerging in, 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 into the consciousness, into the canon, into the literature. And he comes from the world of hostage negotiation, which is also a very different silo of negotiation because you're dealing, as he puts it, literally with somebody who's a terrorist, somebody who may not even know what they want, but uh, there's no back and forth collaborative concession pattern uh, meet in the middle bargain to be had with a terrorist who's holding hostages. Uh, So it's a very different kind of negotiation as well. What we're aiming for with negotiation by design, the application of design, there are elements of it that might apply to, that someone could apply to negotiating pitching sales, hardcore sales, like Jordan Belfort's hardcore, hard sell kind of business. 
the boiler room uh, penny stock business. Uh, and parts of it might apply. You might find bits and pieces of it in hostage negotiation. But we're focused more actually on personal communication and as much personal negotiation as we are commercial negotiation, kind of a blend of the two, a, a mechanism that uses both open-ended questions to develop information, close-ended questions to pin people down. Some of it's competitive, some of it's collaborative problem solving. It's sort of a broader set of tools that may have applicability in different silos, but fundamentally is intended to have the person take on board a, a skill set that maybe resides one layer beneath the tactical approach of a Jordan Belfort or the tactical approach of a Chris Voss, although they may be using some of those pieces as well. Mm. It's kind of long-winded explanation of saying uh, maybe not really like Jordan Belfort, but his techniques are are, are certainly well understood in the negotiation literature. Okay. I'll have to put some links in the show notes for more on yeah. your, your design thinking and negotiation. I mean, it sounds like yeah, it's something you do need to do. A, like you can definitely do a course on it when you're teaching a course. And that sounds, that sounds fascinating. Uh, I guess what one thing I'd like to ask is as an economist, I mean, where uh, economists are interested in negotiation because there's a potential for solving a lot of uh, policy problems with better negotiation and also the market itself there's negotiation within the market there's this idea in the the economics literature called the coast theorem mm-hmm. which uh, associated with uh, ronald coast the uh, the famous uh, uh, chicago school economist and yeah. and coast yeah. was arguing that if you have properly defined property rights and also if you have low transaction costs and any type of externality so pollution or any noise pollution or pollution and rivers, that can be resolved by negotiation. It's caused this huge debate within economics to what extent that that is actually feasible versus the need for regulation or uh, taxes, uh, carbon tax, uh, not carbon taxes at this stage, we can talk about that a bit later, but uh, taxes on pollution. So what I'd like to ask is, like, do you think generally across society, what are our level of negotiation skills? I mean, is it, is it are they at a basic level do we really need to improve them and this is what design thinking can help us do and and I get, yeah yeah please go ahead yeah so I, I, that's a really good question because and, and I've and nobody's presented that to me before uh, I've spent some time thinking about it generally I think we've done a really poor job uh, teaching negotiation it surprises me for example when I started teaching at the law school, um, 12 years ago now, it surprised me that there were only two places in the entire university where you could get a negotiation course, a full credit, you know, formal negotiation course. And that was at the law school and at the business school. And there was much to my chagrin, there was not one offered anywhere across the undergraduate schools. There was not one, one popped up in the engineering school for a short period of time, but kind of just dissipated. Um, so, in fact, we made it our mission to try and distribute the, the news to all the other graduate schools that we were, the B school and the law school were actually running these. Uh, but what struck me is that even at Stanford University, there weren't a whole lot of these courses available. When I was in college, I went to a small liberal arts school, but negotiation wasn't anywhere with any, within miles of campus. There was not a course that even touched on it, that hinted at it, had even one day class day committed to doing a simulation and learning the basics. You know, negotiation as as a course to be taught in school really began, to his credit, with Roger Fisher at Harvard, with the book Getting to Yes. And that sort of crystallized, gave everybody a touchstone to work from to start teaching the fundamentals of negotiation. Um it has its flaws. The getting to yes model has its flaws, uh, and there are critics of it, including Chris Voss, for that for that matter. But it got the ball rolling. But to me, I think there ought to be a pretty much standard curriculum for negotiation taught in elementary school for kids to resolve disputes. You know, in the second or third grade, how to handle disputes on the playground, and then again, maybe in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, how to handle disputes as kids are starting to become, you know, aware of uh, 
the opposite's gender and also the use of cell phones and social media. Before they even graduate high school, they probably should have gone through a couple of layers of formal, and I don't mean formal, uh, you know, in, in the boring way. I mean, uh, standardized curricula that teaches them the tools that they need to have. So it's really surprising to me that it's not taught at K through 12. And there's more and more courses in colleges, uh, particularly bigger colleges. I had two undergraduates uh, just spring term, just finished two weeks ago. I had two undergraduates in my graduate uh, level course, and they were remarkably good at it. And and so, yeah, my feeling is it needs to be it needs to be taught much more thoroughly and earlier. And I think it will be. I think that's going to happen. So if we look at just the education system, then my answer has to be, we have a long way to go to teach the emerging professional adult population basic skills of not just negotiation, but communication, you know, how to listen, how to listen well, how to ask good questions, how to develop information, how to work with information, et cetera, and how to resolve conflict. Yeah. And so is my class intended to fill that void? Not really, but to a degree, you could say it's adding, hopefully adding to the solution, I would like to think. Yeah. 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 I just wonder if we could solve more of our pressing environmental, economic, social challenges via negotiation rather than by government regulation. Uh, that's just a, you know, a, a thought that, I, a, you know, that's just to put out there. There's no need to, to, to respond to that. But one thing I do want to ask you about, David, is I noticed on your signature block uh, when you sent it over this morning is now you've got this, uh, this a line underneath it, climate activism by design. So as the final question, could you please tell us what climate activism by design is, please? Yeah, sure. I'm working on a book by that title. And uh, in fact, as I told you just before we started, the proposal for the book is done, which means in the world of book writing, the book's probably half written already. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I'm doing is uh, applying design thinking to what I consider my personal view is the desperate need for many, many, many more individual climate activists in the world. What, I'm, what I want to do is help the reader, in, and I'm going to refer back to that navigating ambiguity concept, help the reader. And, and I know there's tens of thousands, probably millions of people like myself who look at the climate change problem and think it's bad. It's getting worse. I'm just one individual. All I can do is go vote on election day. What else can I do? And it frustrates me. It hurts me. It makes me angry to watch this happen and not feel like I can do anything. So the overarching theme of the book is to apply design thinking principles to empower an individual to first navigate out of this ambiguity of what can I do as an individual and move them into a place where, well, you can do this, but you can also do this with somebody else. One of the things, as I mentioned earlier, we teach at the D school is uh, building teams and the value of of, of diverse collaborative teams and teamwork and their ability to network and scale in a way that individuals are just, it's just much more difficult. So it's an application of design thinking principles to help people overcome the first hurdle of feeling powerless in the face of climate change to developing small teams, doing small projects, and then reaching out and using what we've got, you know, the facts in the outer circle, which is the internet and social media and access to information to to then spread their wings, become more involved globally, outside of national boundaries, based on issues. So if some one person might be interested in the problem of plastics uh, in the ocean, you know, I, you know I, I mentioned earlier, I was in Singapore for a year and a half. Indonesia has something on the order of 20,000 pounds of plastics dumped onto their beaches every single day. And We've all heard of the Pacific Gyre, which is this mass in the, you know, 
uh, vortex in the center of the Pacific Ocean is miles and miles and miles of plastic junk floating on the surface of the ocean. So people who are interested in plastics, uh, you know, I try and give them a map, a roadmap to getting interested in the small level, but also reaching out and finding other people who are interested in developing a network, a community of people who are interested in their subject area. Because if you think about climate change and you think about environmental issues globally, there are probably two or 3,000 different niche subjects or topics that we could, you could talk about recycling, you could talk about composting, you know, the, the simple stuff, or you can talk about something much more sophisticated. And I'd be remiss if I didn't add right now a plug for my friend Paul Hawkins' book called Project Drawdown, okay. um, which is a wonderful uh, compendium of 60 or 70 of the best uh, issues and the the plausibility of answers. So, and then he even lists the, he ranks the issues by, you know, their likelihood, their impact on the world uh, with respect to climate change. And, you know, it struck me as, as interesting, but they rank number four of all of the issues that have real impact and relevance to affecting climate change, educating girls. Mm -hmm in around the world, not just Africa, but certainly focusing on Africa, educating girls, they have calibrated, they have, you know, done the numbers and said that this is one of the major things that we can do as, a, as societies to improve the human response to the current arc of climate change. By the way, Paul has a new book coming out called Regeneration, which uh, should be on the shelves any day. And and I, I haven't read it yet. I haven't gotten an advanced copy, but I'm sure it's uh, going to take the next step forward. He's one of the strongest writers right. uh, that I know of right now. I'll, I'll check it out. I mean, it sounds, uh, sounds really useful to set out what those issues are. And this sounds like a better approach than what I think are the pretty pointless so so-called extinction rebellions, which just end up frustrating uh, people trying to get around the city. I mean, we, I don't know if you have them in uh, in California, but here... Yeah. In Brisbane, we've adopted that Extinction Rebellion and people go out and cause all sorts of chaos on the roads and bridges. Uh, and look, I know where these people are coming from. There's certainly, there's a, a challenge to address. Uh, I'm just not sure that that's a very productive way to, to go about it. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's part of what I'm trying to drive at at the book is get people with, to corral that energy in a way that is going to be more effective when it's is we, there's a phrase that that came out of Silicon Valley 20 years ago, another probably a B-school buzzword, but highly aligned and loosely coupled. The best teams work in a ways that are when they're highly aligned but loosely coupled. And it could have been a Tom Peters line for all I know. Mm. He's he tends to be the source of really good ones. <laughs> and um, and so the idea, part of my idea is I see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these websites for. Environment, you know, climate change projects, whether and whether it's plastics or uh, otherwise, and what needs to happen, what we need to do to optimize the energy that each of them are bringing, is get them in alignment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, big challenges though. Like I mean, you mentioned plastic bottles, and uh, like I've I've done some work with the Indonesian Ministry of Finance, and I know that that mm. issue of plastic pollution that's a big issue for them. The problem yeah. they've got is that. You need to drink water out of the plastic bottles. That's how it's because you can't drink the water from the taps, and you know that's an issue around the world. So, how you get a, around that? How you how you solve that that challenge? It's going to be difficult because if, I don't think it's going to be costly if you ban plastic bottles, for example. Well, yeah, you know the thinking right now I think is is multifold. One of them is banning single use plastics, oh, which, yes. uh, which is one of the big problems. That should cut into the volume. And then the other is is switching from uh, petroleum-based plastics to bioplastics that are biodegradable and recyclable. And the problem, <laughs> sadly, you know, Henry Ford in World, uh, World War II in the U.S., Henry Ford, believe it or not, because of the metal shortage supporting the war effort, developed a plastic car. Made Whoa. of plastics made of soybean. 
And there are certain plastics, never could sell it. It was a prototype, I gather, but you can make plant-based plastics. It's just more expensive right now for plastic users to buy than it is to buy either virgin or recycled oil-based plastics. So the real problem, the real economic problem is attacking the price differential between the environmentally better plastic and the cheapest plastic, which is environmentally the worst. Mm. Okay, no, fair points. Okay, I'll uh, we'll have to look more into that issue. Dave, sorry, have you got time for one more question? I forgot to ask you about the uh, designing online mediation. So you wrote a paper back in 2014, I think it was, on online dispute resolution, and you yeah. You write that online dispute resolution is coming headlong. Many are familiar with shopping website eBay's highly automated dispute resolution system handling upward of 60 million disputes per year. It resolved a very large percentage of disputes submitted by sellers and buyers without human intervention, and they're generally satisfied with them. That's extraordinary. So does your design thinking, does that help design those systems? Is there artificial intelligence involved in dispute resolution online? Do you have any... Any reflections on on that? Uh, so uh, a guy by the name of Colin Rule, no longer with eBay, uh, is the guy who developed from scratch, basically, not with his own hands, but developed the code that set up a process for allowing buyers and sellers on eBay. Because they have so many buyers and sellers, you can't possibly have a human being act as a mediator. Mm. So they had to automate the system in some fashion. At first, it was fairly rudimentary, right? The seller or the buyer files a complaint because they're unhappy for X reason. There tends to be a finite number of reasons. So they're presented with a menu of options, boom, boom, boom. And they, the seller and buyer work through this process that ultimately gets refined, iterated and refined so to a point where they're both incented to arrive at a deal because of the overarching model, which is pretty keen uh, at eBay, that they both want to maintain their high rating as a buyer or a seller. So they're both motivated to solve the problem. And so they could get, you know, high 90% compliance just by having people have a process that they worked through. And even if a seller had to eat the cost or the buyer had to eat the cost, ultimately, uh, they were able to resolve most of them. And then those that didn't get resolved got spun over, spilled over to humans. Now, what, what Colin is now doing is running a, a, a pretty large project in the U.S., but it's, it's going to go global, where mediators, the lifeblood human beings who mediate uh, usually litigation uh, cases with lawyers, now are trying to deliver their services online. So the rudimentary model was, hey, I'm a mediator. I'll put up a website. We'll use Zoom. You, you, know, you will upload documents that present your case and we'll do it online as if, you know, in a way that sort of mimics the conference room mm. uh, model where mediator, mediation happens when it's, you know, real time, real, you know, in real space. But the next step, which they have not gotten to yet, but they're aiming for, is to in, in put in some AI processes. I don't know what that's going to look like yet, uh, but they, they're, you know, the more of it they, they can automate, then the more cases a mediator can handle. Same concept for legal tech, which is if you can automate review of documents and contract uh, creation, you free up the lawyer's time to do things that are more worthy of the billable hours, than mm-hmm. the billable rate that a lawyer uh, yeah. charges. It's complicated. Uh, and the purpose of my article with respect to mediation is it's a very human undertaking. Mediation is basically negotiation. It's We've been negotiating and thus we've had mediation, you know, since, you know, at least 3,000 years ago, if not more. And it's evolved to have a deep set of norms uh, in language, in communication, in the cultural uh, face-saving component of resolving uh, disputes. And I pose the question, without being able to answer it, of course, and I admit that up front, I pose the question of, do we strip away too much of that deep, good human stuff uh, when we automate dispute resolution, try to automate dispute resolution 
online just for the sake of doing it more quickly, uh, quote unquote, more efficiently? Do we end up, you know, sort of doing processed justice, you know, like we see in the futuristic movies that has stripped all the humanity and judgment and emotion Mm. and justice out of the process? So hence the title, you know, does, quote, just add tech really solve the problem or does it worsen the problem? I don't have an answer for that yet, but that was kind of the exploration of that. Yeah, I guess to the extent that your dispute is because, I mean, there's a a disagreement over facts and the fact you can resolve that easily or or someone could be pointed out, it could be pointed out to someone, well, actually the norm in this situation is this, this is what usually happens and uh, and therefore maybe they will see reason or they will change their opinion. But I guess there's always going to be that ongoing problem of different people having different conceptions of what's acceptable or what the norm is and and so that that would be a bit harder and you 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 might need human intervention then but absolutely fascinating stuff david is there anything else we should you you'd like to mention before we uh we conclude i'll put links to your your new website the the climate activism one i can put that that link and also any other links that are relevant in the show notes but is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion just so the audience knows if you're at all interested in design thinking the uh, we can put a, put the link on on your site as yep. well. The Stanford D School has a very rich public library of materials. If you want to learn, you can take an online course uh, on uh, design thinking off the website, and then you can learn how to teach uh, a primer, a basic primer on design thinking. They have a mo- uh, what they call the design the design thinking starter kit. And there's a plethora of resources to understand what design thinking is as well. So if anybody's interested in it, it's a really rich source to go learn more about design thinking. Oh, absolutely. I think I might check it out myself. It sounds, uh, sounds fascinating. I've learned a lot and uh, yeah, lots of really good examples, David. Really appreciate it. Professor David Johnson from Stanford, thanks so much for appearing on the program. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Gene. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Goodbye.